Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm excited to be here today with Jason Mellid, who is the CEO and co-founder of Start Codon, which is a life sciences accelerator based in Cambridge, UK. Before this, Jason was the CEO of Cambridge Epigenetics and led that company through a $30 million Series C fundraising in 2018. He's also the co-owner of the Lab Cocktail Bar in Cambridge. So maybe before we get into Start Codon and Cambridge Epigenetics and others, how, how did you come to co-own a cocktail bar? Oh, thanks for having me, Patrick. It's a, it's a funny story. So one of my best friends, Tony Kuzuridis, who's a serial, serial entrepreneur, he's a professor in Cambridge. Um, we've been friends. That's a whole other story, but we've been friends for many years. And he always told me that he had a dream of having his own pub someday. And actually, he was going to call it PubMed, to be cheeky. Um, but I was sitting with some friends, and one of them, through a friend of a friend, said that a steak in this bar in town, which was a cocktail bar, was available. And the first person I did, um, I called was Tony and I said, guess what? There's a bar available. What do you think we should do? And he said, what do you mean? What do I think we should do? We should get it. And I said, okay, let's do it. So we ended up buying a steak in this bar. And funny enough, one of the original owners, his name is Peter. He's a dear friend. He's a GP. So he owns several medical practices in Cambridge. So we say we're like the three doctors, right? One professor, one GP surgeon, and um, me with my business hat on. Amazing. Where I went to university at University of North Carolina, there was a, a bar called the library and uh, people would say I'm going to the library and, and I, I love the name of the bar. It's, it's uh, very good for plausible deniability. It's exactly what we had in mind. So no one will ever question you if you're a scientist and you're like, oh, I was in the lab last night. They go, oh, so you're just working hard. <sighs> yes, exactly. When, so when did, uh, when did that happen timeline wise? That was um, two years ago, actually a year and a half ago. Trying to think. This is 2020. Time has really flown. So we got it towards the beginning of 2019. um, We were trying to figure out what to do with it and how we were going to rebrand it. And we reopened it with this science theme with like a 1920s Art Deco vibe and really an ode to science. So like the cocktail names have like, you know, Hawking's Big Bang and gin therapy instead of gene therapy, you know, little little cheeky things like that. Yeah, I've, I've been there a couple of times and it is, it, it's very, it's very, um, it's got a great ambiance. It, obviously the drinks are good, but you all have clearly thought about, uh, what, what kind of, um, experience you want people to have. Okay. So that's in early 2019. So that would have been after you, probably shortly after you finished, uh, CEO of Cambridge Epigenetics. And as you were thinking about or incubating the idea for, for Start Codon, is that right? Yeah. It was all going on at the same time. So I would say that. The journey for Star Codon began in 2018, actually, because I was thinking about what my next step was going to be. I'd left the company Cambridge Epigenetics in terms of being very well funded. We were pursuing diagnostics at the time, and I was thinking, okay, right, what is it that I really want to do? Do I want to be the CEO of a diagnostics company? Is it actually what I'm good at, and is it what I want? And you've got to have the combination of those two things to be successful, right? And I had a long, hard think, and I talked with my all my advisors and the board members and everyone else. And around the same time, the opportunity came up to set up a new accelerator in Cambridge um, with all the different parties involved. So, you know, Cambridge Innovation Capital, which is the VC arm of the university. We had uh, Tony, who was the head of the Milner, was talking to me about it as well. And we'd already been talking about other things. And, you know, Anna Williamson from Genentech, Jonathan Milner himself, um, the Babraham Research Campus, all these elements came together. And I said, this would be a fantastic opportunity to do what I really love, helping the next generation of companies get off the ground. And I loved starting new things. And I thought, if I have a job where I'm helping people start new things all the time, I basically would be in my sweet spot. So I decided to go for it. Excellent. And how's that been? And, and how did you figure out that that was, that was your passion and what you really wanted to do? You know, it took some time. I've always enjoyed mentorship. Like ever since I was younger, I, I tell people I'm a product of my parents. My father was a geneticist, a professor of animal genetics at a small black university back home in Louisiana. My mother was a social worker, but a serial entrepreneur in the sense that she had a pharmacy for a while. She sold Mary Kay Cosmetics door to door. She would take me around on her trips when she was doing sales pitches. And so I always had that science, but also that entrepreneurial lean. And I just knew that my combination of my science passion, my business passion, but also my desire to mentor and help others be successful, it just all came together in a natural fashion. And so what I loved the most when I was at Cambridge Epigenetics were the early days when I was building things from scratch, when we were going out and trying to strike deals and when we were trying to find new clever ways to keep the company growing and pivoting and learning. And I just loved that. And so I knew when the opportunity came to combine all those passions together, 
especially when I uh, got a chance to meet my co-founder and now one of my best mates, Daniel Rook, it just all came together so nicely. And here we are. That's great. So for people who are not uh, as familiar with, with accelerators, startup accelerators, wonder if you could just explain where, why they exist and, and what you're, you know, what are you looking for in a, in an early stage company that makes you think with a little bit of guidance and, and capital and, and a little bit of luck, they can, they can change the world in some way. It's a good question. There are a lot of things that are called accelerators, and it's kind of a catch-all phrase, which I think is a bit unfortunate because it doesn't do justice to the wide range and levels of support. So you get accelerators that have no capital. There are accelerators that invest small amounts of capital, maybe non-dilutive or dilutive, and then you get accelerators like us who invest significant amounts of capital for an early stage. Uh, we have an LP fund and we invest in companies. We don't just provide guidance or just provide incubation and office and lab space. So we're kind of a one-stop shop. I think accelerators, um, and I say this a lot now, sometimes they can be stagnators where companies go there and they sit and they don't really accelerate. We think of acceleration in the true sense of the form. We have to say that for the equity that we're taking from you and the time you're spending with us, you have to be exponentially progress compared to when you started with us. It can't just be you've gone another six months and you've made a small amount of progress. If you really are in an accelerator, you have to follow what the word means, semantics matter. So I challenge people, look at the accelerated programs that are out there. There are actually loads, but try to find the programs you actually believe in, that you see the success stories from. Talk to people who've been through the programs if you can and see what benefit they've had from going through it. Yeah, that's great. And I and I think you you've gone through almost two rounds and you're I think you're getting ready to open your third early next year. I wonder if you could give some examples of what that acceleration looks like. Uh, obviously, um, you know, only with the with the permission of these companies that um that, that are going through accelerator, but maybe a flavor of of what kind of companies you you bring through and what they look like in the beginning and then what they look like coming out the other side. Sure. So I will say this that we are still relatively early in our own journey. And so it's been exciting to be building Starcode on that, building our brand, you know, raising our own finances, et cetera. So we're basically a startup in parallel to the startups that we're supporting. So whenever they ask us, oh, have you experienced this? We don't just speak from experience. We say, we're experiencing it right now. It's like, I've just closed my financing right now. I've just done X, Y, and Z right now. So not only have I done it, I'm doing it as we speak. So trust me, I can relate. And I think that's actually helped a lot with the companies that we talked to. But to answer your question, we are looking at therapeutics, diagnostics, medtech, and digital health quite broadly. So life sciences, healthcare, or even things outside of life sciences that can apply to healthcare, we're interested. When we say early stage, some of the companies we look at are existing. They might have had a bit of angel financing, maybe some non-dilutive grant funding. Who knows? But they exist and they come to us. A lot of times, the majority of what we've done so far is helping nucleate companies from scratch, helping them spin out of universities, helping them negotiate key um, license agreements, build their teams, map out their business plans. And that seems to be our kind of um, the place where we shine, venture building and venture creation. So we're looking for existing companies, but also we really enjoy getting our hands dirty and working with founders to spin the company out from scratch. And what's important to us is that with the partners we have at the table, particularly the likes of Roshan Genentech, and also Novartis and some of the other partners we have with um, you know, our law firms, other pharma and biotech we deal with, they help us not only select the right companies, but support them when they're in our program and also ideally invest in them and or partner with them after they leave the program. And that's important to us. In terms of picking a winner, we want to look for us a pull from the market, not just blue sky, hopefully this works and we'll just you know, find a home for it, and also not spray and pray. We reject this notion that you know, one in 10 companies will fail or succeed and one in 10 successes will be a unicorn. And then that's where you get all the returns on your fund. I would rather be, my favorite example, more like Motown, where you have hit after hit after hit. That's the model that I would love for us to follow. I want to buck this trend and this notion that VC is kind of like, it's a gamble. If you have the right guidance, the right support, and pull together the right team, I believe that more of these really groundbreaking innovations will make their way into the clinic and make a difference. I love that. How, how do you spot something that maybe is, is just come out of a university lab and you have to go through what is, uh, I know to be a pretty challenging process to negotiate how much of the you know idea the university owns and what the royalties look like. And I know you have experience in this because, because I, th I think you spent some time at Cambridge enterprise, the, the university, um, you know, technology transfer and investment seed investment arm, 
what is what is that like um, to see something that's really just maybe a scientific concept or or a grain of a future therapeutic or or diagnostic? And what do you need to see there in order to to feel like it's it's worth you know putting taking a you know taking an investment to produce that Motown hit that you're that you're going after? I think the first thing is you've got to have the right attitude. You need to be able to see diamonds in the rough and see past all the challenges that are there today and the limitations and see the potential for the future. The number of times that we looked at opportunities and said, wow, this has a lot of potential. If I do this, this, and this and bring these people and I know this person and make this connection with these right investors and this path, we can make this something really great. That's our attitude. We're not superficial thinkers. I find that too many in the the investment community and the venture community, maybe because they are, let's say, a bit cynical, maybe because they look at too many opportunities, maybe in some cases they might be a bit wiser. I don't know. But they often quickly dismiss. They say, I saw a pitch. I didn't like it. I'm done. Or they sent me a pitch deck and here's their plan. And okay, it doesn't make any sense. Or it's just an early stage technology. It's way too soon. Come back to me when you've done X, Y, and Z. We're the opposite. We say, what can we do to make you successful? As opposed to we're expecting you to have all the answers when you approach us. And that's a part of the niche and the gap that we think that we fill. Come to us and we can help you package yourself in a way that the other investors downstream of us will finally get it. They'll understand because they're looking for certain things. They're looking for you to have certain um, advisory board members. They're looking for you to have certain key aspects of your pitch deck. They're looking for a team that looks a certain way and has a certain level of experience. And the other thing we do is we're very big on diversity and inclusion. So I've met people of many different ethnicities and religions and, and socioeconomic backgrounds and genders and you name it, who often get dismissed out of hand because they don't look like the typical entrepreneur. We see past all of that. And we say, you know what? We believe in you. That's their loss. And that's another way that we feel that we're going to be able to get a leg up on what, you know, you could say is our competition. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you, how did you choose to focus in Cambridge? I know you mentioned that this idea had been bubbling with some of the successful entrepreneurs that were here already, like, like Jonathan Milner and Tony Kuzaridis. Do you accept ideas or companies that come from outside? How do you decide? Because some people say we're laser focused on things that come out of the university and then they miss things that don't come out of the university. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in how you think about where where your where your remit ends and, and where it begins. 100%. We are global. The only requirement we have is that the companies we invest in must have a top co that's an English or Welsh limited co registered in companies house. Otherwise, we're completely open. We've got companies we're looking at spinning out of universities in Singapore, Germany, even some companies in the States who want to relocate to the UK. We are more than open. In the cohort that we have now, we're looking at a company out of Birmingham. We're looking at one out of London. Um, The next cohort, we're looking at companies coming potentially from Bristol, from Edinburgh. You name it. We are very much broadly UK, broadly Europe, and also the rest of the world. As long as they have that English and Welsh limited code, which we can help them set up. We are interested in investing. The Cambridge link comes from the fact that I've been here since 2004, came here to do my PhD, and I love Cambridge. I think that it is an excellent place to grow a business. But even for businesses that don't choose to relocate here, the resources we have in Cambridge are so concentrated and yet so easily accessible. All they need is a gateway to get access. I mean, you know what it's like. If you want to meet somebody or talk to someone, there's someone in your network who knows them. They'll make that introduction, and that person, nine times out of ten, will be more than willing to talk to you. It doesn't matter if they're a Nobel Prize winner all the way down to a technician and everything in between. Cambridge is a nice, friendly place. So you've got the expertise, you've got the willingness to help, and then we're there to help kind of hone that and leverage it for the benefit of the companies that come through us. And we always tell people that worst case scenario, if you apply for StarCodon and we review you and it turns out that you aren't the right fit for us, there's always somebody that we're happy to introduce you to, at least. Because if... More companies are successful, particularly in the UK ecosystem, we're all successful. It doesn't only have to be the companies that come through StarCodon that we help. Yeah, and I, I think that's great. And and it's uh, it's really helpful from having been on the other side of the table and, and still being there that, you know, you're, you're always, you, there's always unanswered questions, right? And it's helpful to have someone who can point you in the right direction. I, I was curious about how you how you form a view of predicting the future for lack of a better term, because that's that's really to some large extent your job, both predicting the future and, and helping to make it happen. Do you have specific trends or or 
technology areas, things that you are betting on yourself or you think will will happen in the next 10 years? Or do you take more of a um, I, you know, agnostic approach where you listen to what the people who come to you say and, and then form your your view on whether you think that particular group of individuals or, or ideas is going to be successful? I do a, a couple different things. So I do a bit of both of those. Um, I'd say that obviously you've got to stay informed. My team and I were constantly reading, constantly talking to people. And what's great is that the earlier we engage, the better for us. So there's a company that we're spinning out now that we started engaging with two years ago, even before we had the fund to make the investments, because I was thinking, you're on to something. And it was interesting because it's actually a company that's a combination of cell therapy and small molecules. And all the investors that they spoke to said, we don't understand. You're either a cell therapy company or you're a small molecule therapy company. You can't be both. And when they came and pitched to us, we got it. We were like, actually, this is brilliant. No one's really combined these two together. And they synergize so well. And I understand why it's actually a combination therapy that can so on and so forth in the clinic. It's going to be much more about combination therapies instead of just one drug, one target, et cetera. So in my mind, knowing in my belief that the future is going to be more combination therapies, more precision medicine, more telemedicine, I'm always on the lookout for those opportunities and hoping to spot them before others um, caught on. The other thing that we do is I like reboots. Now, television has loads of reboots. Sometimes it gets a bit annoying because you think they're bringing that show back again, really? But oftentimes it's refreshed. It's taking a second look. It's actually better than it was in the original, especially when you have a look at it. I was watching the other day Cobra Kai, which I thought, this is clever. It's a reboot on the Karate Kid on Netflix. No plug. Not, not getting any commission here. But... It's a reboot and a refresh look at it, but actually it feels fresh and new with a, like kind of a, um, a nostalgia element to it. And I kind of like the combination. And we're finding that a lot of the opportunities that are coming across our plate now are technologies that were ahead of their time, say 10, 15, even 20 years ago, that people dismissed out of hand. One of the first companies we invested in, Drishti, is in short hairpin RNA. And many people said, oh, RNAi, it had its heyday, never really panned out. A couple of companies have success and they forgot about it. Everyone's jumped onto CRISPR. Turns out that there are a lot of applications for RNAIs, particularly short hair RNA. The vectors have been really optimized, and there's so many uses you could use them for, especially in this world, again, where it's not just one gene target, one disease. What if you want to address multiple targets at the same time in a patient or fine-tune it for more and more narrowly subdefined patient populations? RNAI is well-suited to that. So those are things that you take a second look where everyone else says, ah, been there, done that. It's not the hype thing now. We like to go back and say, well, maybe all the issues that were there 10 years ago have been solved. There's some new technology and new business model, new new execution plan. Is it worth taking another look? So I like that too. Yeah, I love that. If if we take the RNAi example, which uh, which is the one that I really like because I did most of my research career in rare diseases, and that's one of the most promising therapeutic avenues for ultra rare diseases because, it, it, as you said before, it can be precisely genetically targeted. What what is it about that now that has that has changed? Is it um, simply a, a progression of the technology on multiple fronts? I'm and, and any other examples of, uh, of things that are that are fresh and ready for a reboot, I think would be really, really interesting to hear about. And I mean, there's some like deep learning that are on their fourth or fifth reboot. So how do you know when it's a, when it's a false start reboot or if it's a if it's a true reboot? <laughs> now, that's the most important question, because not all reboots actually work. Right? Sometimes you should have just left it where it that's was. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love this metaphor. Actually, we could take this. We could take this the whole way. <laughs> Dude, we could. It's a theme that we should roll with it. Um, so, Drishti, the company I just mentioned, is exactly that. It's a rare disease company looking at autosomal dominant disorders using RNAi technology. And what's interesting there is that you have this ability to knock down the offending enzyme and replace it with a wild type copy. And depending on the clever engineering you do, the wild type copy is not going to be inhibited, but the wild type is right. Because RNAi allows you to do that. Now, the reason why that is more tractable now is if you have a vector that has the off-target effects reduced by the fact that it's in a, say, microRNA scaffold, and that's what Drishti is commercializing, what we feel is the best-in-class short hairpin RNA vector based on a microRNA scaffold, so you significantly reduce the off-target effects and increase your on-target and knockdown rate, and it's fine-tunable for the different diseases. So you can imagine, you can say, here's a rare disease, 
I can roll out the gene therapy, test it in vitro, test it in vivo, and get to market as quickly as possible without having to worry about some of the limitations. So key enabling technologies like that make a difference. RNAi, as all it goes back in the day, had some challenges. MicroRNA vectors delivered by adenine-associated virus has a lot of benefits. So key changes. Um, some other examples, we have a company in our first cohort called Spuria. They're an antibody drug conjugate company. Now, again, ADCs have been around. They haven't really fulfilled their true promise for a variety of different reasons. And when we were first looking at them, they even admitted the feedback they've had from so many as ADCs. They've been done. Everybody's tried it. You know, it was a big promise, didn't really succeed, et cetera, et cetera. And they said, well, the reasons why it didn't succeed, one of them is the payloads are limited and the number of payloads you can associate with an antibody molecule, the drug-antibody ratio, is limited as well. So they developed a novel linker that allows you to increase the DAR, the drug-antibody ratio, by at least fourfold. So you get four times as many drug molecules attached to the antibody without disrupting the antibody structure or ability to target. So you can imagine just how much more punch you can get and how you can start to mix and match different payloads as well. So you expand the repertoire. And it's a whole revitalization of ABCs when people thought, oh, a handful have made it to clinic. Mm, it's kind of a, a been there, done that. Uh, the third example I'll give you real quick is enhanced genomics. So they're a really, I think, exciting company for the next generation of genomic analysis. Genome-wide association studies have been around for donkey's years, Right. You look at population scale genetics and you find, you know this, uh, Patrick, oh, I'm looking at all these variants. You know what I mean, right? It's like, oh, I'm looking at all these variants and oh, isn't this wonderful? And I'll publish a nature genetics paper and I'll do it again and again and again. And then people say, well, that's interesting. 90% of the variants you find are non-coding. So what are they doing? Why does this particular SNP in the middle of some intergenic region make me, you know, 60% more likely to develop type 2 diabetes? And the scientists go, I don't know, but I've got a nature genetics paper, so that, that should be good enough. So what Enhanced Genomics is doing is they're leveraging 3D chromatin architecture. So they have a technique called Promoter Capture High C that allows you to match all the promoters and enhancers in any given cell type and then overlay that with GWAS data to identify what those non-coding SNPs are doing. So you'll be able to say, hmm, I've got this non-coding SNP that I know puts me at higher risk of type 2 diabetes. And I know that in... Cell type A is impacting these genes, and cell type B is impacting these other genes, and cell type C is impacting maybe no genes. And then that way you go from all this accumulated population genomics data, or the kind of data that maybe the sound genetics uh, users are accumulating, and you can interpret it far beyond what our limitation has been for only looking at coding variants. That's great. You're you're absolutely speaking my language with the non-coding variation. That was what my PhD work was focused on, actually, non-coding variation in rare developmental disorders. And this is the this is the biggest challenge. It's ninety-eight percent of the DNA. It's it's contributing to the lion's share of common complex diseases. Not it's still we, we're not able to find that much evidence of how important it is in, in rare diseases, although it does do something. But understanding what's going on, I think there's potential therapeutic avenues there as well, because if you take the rare disease case where you need two healthy copies of, of the gene to, you know, to be healthy and you get one knocked out and then you end up with a rare disease, if you're able to use, uh, you know, there's a, the, you can basically artificially pump up the volume of the one healthy copy in order to compensate. And there's a whole potential avenue of, of therapeutic applications there that are, that are early stage. And and I, I think it's really exciting. It sounds like uh, is Enhanced Genomics, is that the name of the company? Can, That's right, Enhanced Genomics. I will make an introduction after this podcast. Great. I'd, I'd, love, to, uh, I'd love to hear more about what they're doing because it's a, it's a really important problem. How, how do you, you've named a couple of therapeutic companies which take a tremendous amount of time and, and hard real science to get to proof points. When they, when they come to you and they have you know, maybe an, an idea early in wet lab experiments, what, what are you typically helping them to put together? You're not, I, I imagine, not able to get anywhere near the clinical stage, but are you building a, you're building conviction with potential customers or, or users of this? And, and you're also putting together ultimately packages of, of data and experiments to support that, that we are, yes, we are onto something so they can go attract more, more funding to take it to the next level. Is that about right? That is right. I mean, we're very keen on platform technologies. So the three companies that I mentioned are platforms. So first and foremost, we have to make sure that their R&D and IP situations are as robust and secure as possible. So we want to make sure that they've got, uh, you know, a really healthy 
proof of concept data that they've protected the workflow and any improvements that are really important for it to work and that they can demonstrate the robustness of the platform, the reproducibility of the platform and the outputs. They need to have some, usually they have in vitro data already and probably publications underpin what they've done. Not always, but usually. We're typically funding them to get some in vivo data as well, at least for one application of their platform to demonstrate that it is real. And that's the package that we're using to help them get follow-on funding. Often we syndicate when we invest, so we bring other investors in as well to give them more of a runway. We're happy for them to utilize their existing resources in the academic labs where they're coming from if they're an academic spin-out. And we also are very keen to help them get Innovate UK funding and other sources of non-dilutive funding as well. And so we piece all of that together to try to create as attractive a product as possible. So again, we practice what we preach. In my opinion, we are developing products and the products are the companies that we invest in. And to have a good product, you need to have that really product-focused mindset. There's an unmet need. You're developing a product solution for that unmet need. And it needs to be of certain levels of robustness and have certain amounts of evidence built up to convince people that it's the real deal. And we treat every company that we invest in in the same way. That's great. How how many companies have gone through in your first and second cohorts? Do you have a, a fixed number or what's your what's your model? How many of these great ideas can you and your team support at once? So we're looking at two cohorts per year. And we're looking to have between four and five companies per cohort. So we've had nine companies, four have gone through, five are in the middle of cohort two as we speak, and we're actively recruiting for cohort three, which will be starting in March next year. That's amazing. That's very exciting. It, you're, you're, you're planting a, a forest that, I, I mean, it takes a lot of time. I, I'm interested in understanding of the nine companies that have gone through where, what stage they're all at now, but I, I almost hesitate to ask because I know how how long these things take and six to 12 months really isn't always enough, enough time to see tangible results. But I'm curious, are there, are there any who are really, um, you know, off to the races after, after accelerating through start code on? I think that they all are, particularly in the first cohort, we've got some that have already had follow on financing others that are going for fundraising. Now um, the key for us is that we don't just abandon them and they yeah. leave the program. So we take observer seats on their boards we stick with them. We still have monthly catch-up meetings. They're like, they're part of our family and their success is our success. So we're not just going to have them come through our six-month formal program and kick them onto the side of the road. We stay with them. We help them by introducing them to pharma partners, to investors, you name it. So they're very much in that kind of 18-month journey from when they started with us to when they'll be able to secure their next tranche of funding. And we stick with them and support them. And what that means is that with our lean team, We've got to be very, very streamlined with our efforts because you've got the previous cohort, the cohort that you're dealing with at the moment and the cohort that's coming in the future. And you have to balance that out. So we really rely, I rely on my team, you know, obviously they're fantastic, but we have loads of partners. We've got everything from student um, interns and volunteers that we work with. We've got uh, great partners that are legal, HR, uh, marketing, CRO partners, our companies can outsource their work to regulatory advisors, you name it. We bring everybody together. It takes a village. Yeah, it absolutely does. I have noticed that you have uh, students from the University of Cambridge that get involved. How how does that come? I think that's an amazing. It's an amazing experience for them to be exposed to this. What do you look for, and what do they do as part of the program? Yeah, so we have students from Cambridge, and we also have students from Anglia Ruskin University because we wanted to expand our remit and bring everybody to the table. And I think historically. Uh, both universities have been in the same town, they're almost living in parallel lives. And we said, well, can we be a bridge to bring them together? We are working with the v, the Venture Capital and Private Equity Society of the University of Cambridge. It's a mouthful. And they're a, they're a fantastic group of enthusiastic students who want to get into VC, BE investment. And so we have a venture promoters program where they look at non-confidential decks for some of the companies we're interested in, and they do kind of a high-level triaging and diligence. We train them on how to do due diligence, and then we review what their findings are. And it's a huge help for us. We find that it's educational for them. It's a help for us. It's a way for us to give back to the community. And then we have a follow-on program called the Venture Scholars Program, where some of the students who were venture promoters, we have them interviewed, we select who we think are some of the top students, and they get to spend another six months with us working hand-in-hand with our diligence team to do the next deep dive and um, assessment of companies. And with Anglia Ruskin, we've got a fantastic group of intern volunteers who help both start code on as well as our companies. 
So it could be anything that's scientific. It could also be administrative and operational. They can help with business plans, website building, um, you know, designing experiments, building out information databases, you name it. We've had a student who's helped. So it's great to have both. And fortunately, we hope that the experience is something they can put on their CV to help them get a job. So everybody should be happy. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure at least a couple of your companies will have great experiences with these uh, interns if they haven't already, and they'll and they'll try to hire them uh, as soon as they graduate. Exactly. We've had loads of great feedback from the companies. I think it's one of the best decisions that we made is to say, how can we reach out and work with students in a different way? We didn't want it to just always be who's got a company come and pitch to us. We're hoping Start Code On is going to be a brand that people associate with innovation, and we really want to make an impact as a company itself, not just as an investor. Yeah, that's that's so great. When I was in university, uh, there was a program that I was a part of that uh, funded our travel in the summer to go do an internship somewhere. And I did an internship with a genetic testing company in the San Francisco Bay Area called Invitae. They're a really big company now. They do you know clinical testing for hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. When I was there, they were a 30-person company, and I was an intern working on some kind of computer programming thing. But it really opened my eyes to research happens not just in academic research labs, but it, it was a very research intensive company. They were basically 80% scientists and engineers figuring out how do we do diagnostic genetic testing at scale. And, and I think these kind of experiences really can be very formative for, for just showing people the sheer breadth of career opportunities that there are out there. It's, it's the world is much bigger than, than, it, than when you, what you think it is when you're in university. A hundred percent. And anybody listening, I think what we're saying is we encourage you to expand your mind, expand your horizons, uh, because if you don't, you're just going to fade into the crowd. Like, don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. Just go for it and get that experience. When you decide to shift out of Cambridge Epigenetics and, and look for the next thing, what, what did you learn there? Because you were with the company for, I don't remember exactly, but it would have been at least three or four years and, and you climbed the ranks from business development all the way up to CEO. I'd love to hear more about how that journey went, a little bit more about what the company does because it's a fascinating company and, and technology and what you learned from that that you bring into your, your, your next act that you're on right now. Definitely. I was there for six years. Amazing. So I was employee number three, and um, it was an incredible journey. It was a very long conversation to go through, but I met some of the dearest friends and lifelong friends of my life. It, I would not be where I am today if it hadn't been for the opportunity that was given to me, especially I had only a little bit of experience from Cambridge Enterprise, and then I was at Horizon for a brief stint when um, one of my dear friends, Ian Thomas, I was on his team at Cambridge Enterprise. He approached me and said, there's a great company called Cambridge Epigenetics that's just getting started. And you should go to it. And I said, oh, I don't know. It's a startup. And, you know, I'm just learning. And I'm, ah, nah, nah. And he said, listen, you will regret it if you don't go and at least interview for this because I really think that you would enjoy it. So I said, okay. And then I met with Bobby and Shanker, who are the co-founders. I mean, Bobby was full of energy. Um, and then Shanker, obviously, I mean, he invented selective sequence in chemistry. So, of course, I knew who he was by reputation and legacy. But he was so down to earth and so, just so incredible, like a scientific brain he has. I met Martin Murphy as well, who was um, looking to be the chair. We were Simcona's first investment. And it was just an amazing group of people. And so I joined and they said, right, okay, we've got two scientists, Toby and Christine, and you. Now, you didn't we didn't hire you to do the science. We hired you to basically to do everything else. And I went, okay, I guess I'll, I'll figure it out. So, you know, um, come up with a website, go sell some kits, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it took. And it was really a, a, a study in how to be agile, how to go out to the market with a kit, learn so much about all the things that we had to provide in addition to the kit for people to be able to use the thing. You, we went out with the product and they said, oh, well, this is really nice, but, you know, the experiment is too expensive and I can't interpret the data and I, I don't have enough DNA. And I thought, wow, you really do need an end-to-end -end product solution. You do not get a lot to do. Yeah. You got to, right, exactly. So I came back to home base and said, right, just so you know, here's what I've learned, that they would like to use our chemistry, but we need to do all of this, not just the one aspect. What did the kit actually do? What, what, if you could explain the technology and, and what the kit actually uh, was designed to do, I think that'd be great. Sure. So the whole premise of Cambridge Epigenetics was that it had been discovered, I'd say uh, in the early 2000s, that 
there was a new DNA methylation modification present in mammals and in humans, full stop, right? Called 5-hydroxymethylcytosine and other derivatives that were discovered after that. So a couple of things came to, to um, the fore. 5-HMC exists. It's in significant levels in certain parts of the genome. You can't distinguish it from 5-methyl-C with bisulfite. Everybody uses bisulfite, and 5-HMC and 5-methyl-C have fundamentally different functions. So how many years of confounded data sets have people been generating using bulk standard bisulfite chemistry? There's quite the scandal, but nobody had any techniques really for distinguishing between the two. So people wanted to keep their heads in the sand and said, well, I've got this data and I want to publish it. So I don't really want to admit that it's confounded. And that may be the reason why my methylation data, which should correlate to gene repression, often is found at high levels of genes that are highly expressed. And it doesn't make sense, but maybe nobody will notice what's going on. And it turns out it's because there's multiple DNA methylation marks. People didn't have the chemistry to distinguish between them. And Oxbius Chemistry, which was the flagship for the company, was the best in class for robustly and reproducibly distinguishing between those two. So it opened up a whole new field of study looking at alternative DNA methylation marks and their different functions rather than just saying DNA methylation means gene silencing. So the kit was allowing people to use Oxbius Chemistry for the first time and combining it with you know, sequencing or methylation arrays, et cetera. And then we grew from that and learned from it what we thought would be the killer application of 5-HMC. And we learned that it was particularly good and particularly, um, let's say, varied during the early stages of disease, like cancer. Because you get spikes of 5-HMC when the epigenome is changing. And the epigenome, for the most part, is relatively static. Like most sites are methylated, they're always methylated. But you get massive epigenetic changes in the early stages of cancer, particularly at the precancerous steps. Like in colorectal cancer, when you get advanced adenomas, there's loads of epigenetic changes going on that are leading towards the cancer phenotype. And that meant that 5-HMC was really good at detecting those early epigenetic disruptions that would point you to not only stratifying patients, but potentially detecting cancer early. So we pivoted the company towards liquid biopsy and early detection because 5-HMC was naturally amenable to that. But we learned that from our collaborators who went out and said, what does 5-HMC do? It must do something. Now I have a tool to measure it. Let me figure it out. So one thing led to the next. How did you decide to take the company full on into this application that you just described of, of early cancer detection rather than do what, what Illumina did, which you, met, you mentioned the inventor of Selexa sequencing, which eventually became Illumina, they, for a very long time, just sold the machines and the tools and let everyone else go and do... Now they are, um, they're, they've acquired this company, Grail, which I think they spun out of Illumina originally anyways. So they've sort of come full circle and are, are moving into applications and not just technology. But I'm interested in how you all made the decision to go and actually go after that application immediately rather than than just sell the um you know the tools and, and enable uh, uh you know others to go after this um particular application well we always knew that selling the tools and enabling people would point us in the direction of what we thought would be the highest value for 5hmc and for the technologies we were developing we also knew that selling tools was never going to make us the unicorn that we felt we had the potential to be because you'd have to have a large enough um, toolkit, either a really expensive piece of kit that has reagent pull through, like the Illumina sequencing instruments, and then a whole family you can build, small ones and big ones, et cetera, et cetera. Or you would have to have a very healthy, large portfolio of chemistry and products that you could sell to people. So not just one or two kits, but like hundreds of kits, and you become a reagent supplier, you build up your sales network, you work out your distribution channels. It's a whole different beast. We didn't want to do either of those things. And so when we figured out what was the highest potential, we thought we could either be the company that enables other people to do the biomarker discovery, or we could take a gamble and give it a go ourselves. That meant there was a massive upheaval in terms of the business plan, the kind of personnel that you need to pull that off, um, the, the type of capital you need to raise to do it. But we felt that it was worth it, and we decided to push ahead and go for it. Yeah, and, and probably in many ways it was nice to not not have to convince others that this was an opportunity that that they have to go after. And you could say, if, if we believe in this and think this is one of the killer applications, then then why don't we just go out there and do it? 
Exactly. But I wouldn't say that it's indefinite that that had to have happened. There are plenty of companies out there who are more comfortable or better suited to partnering or continuing to sell their kits or even providing a service. There are lots of different models you could follow. We just knew that for us, we wanted to give it a go. Liquid biopsy was just becoming to the forefront for early detection of cancer. And we felt, right, let's give this a go because we know 5-HMC is so good at those early changes. It's a natural, natural biomarker if you want to detect cancer before it becomes metastasized or even before it becomes stage one, stage two. That's great. And I know we're running up against time here. We're, we're recording this at, uh, are you are you still in Cambridge? Because it's uh, seven o'clock on Friday night. We're uh, in Cambridge and I'll be here for the foreseeable. <laughs> great. We're well, we're well into the weekend here. So I'm conscious of your time. Um, I, I we, We're recording a, a combo episode of a number of different people who are are experts and, and visionaries in precision medicine and, and uh, genomics. And so I wanted to ask if you have any predictions for 2021. This can be a, a trend to watch, a, a prediction about um, you know, something that you think will happen, uh, preferably something that, that we've not, we're not on all of our radars so we can, uh, we can learn something new. Specifically in the genomic space? It can be in genomics, precision medicine, wh- whatever you're interested in. We, we, we take a pretty wide uh, lens on this podcast. So I have been very fortunate that I have a platform to talk about diversity and inclusion. And I know I mentioned it briefly earlier on about that's something that's at the heart of what we do at Start Code On. But I think what hasn't been on people's radar is that diversity and inclusion is not just something that's morally right. It's actually good business sense, both in terms of your teams and how you build the teams, the investors who should be backing these companies in the first place, and also the founders that should be um, given an opportunity to shine. But what that also means is, there's a whole swath of the human population on the planet who have issues and needs, genetic diversity and opportunities that are not being addressed or commercially exploited to the extent that they could and should be. And I think the trend in 2021 off of the back of things like, you know, Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and everything we've seen with the recent elections, shall we say, that people are going to be thinking more, hmm, I wonder if this is not just something I should do because it's morally right. I wonder if there's an opportunity here. I wonder what would happen if I knew more about the the reasons why people who are maybe black and brown suffer more from COVID. Or if I understood that, um, you know, Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and parts of Latin America are really on the rise and growing rapidly. And there are populations there where the medicines that we've developed and the stratification tools we've developed don't apply to them. I think that people have missed a trick. And those companies that suddenly realize that actually this is a massive opportunity for them are going to be the ones that thrive and survive for the next, say, 50 years. If they're still stuck on, I'm in my European or American bubble, I'm in my Western kind of focus, and all these little outliers we don't really care about because they're minorities, quote unquote, they should realize that they're actually global majorities and they should be considering them to be their next customers. I love that. One of the one of the things that I personally think about a lot and and struggle with how how it's going to play out is this issue of genetic prediction and the lack of non-European ancestry uh data and it results in this vicious cycle where all analyses exclude people of non-European ancestry and then the algorithms only work on people that have white European ancestry, and then data is only collected in these people, and, and it's a, a vicious cycle. And I, I'm wondering if you, do, do you think, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where the leverage is here. And it seems like one one way is if healthcare systems, for example, the NHS refuses to to allow tests that do not work in, you know, in, in every uh, group of people in the country, and, and or if the FDA, for example, requires that minimum levels of of diversity are are met in trials and as far as i'm aware this isn't this isn't on the books anywhere it's something that people talk about but i fear i'm i'm interested if you have other ideas on examples like this where 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 does the buck stop and how how you know where where companies don't see that it's a commercial opportunity but instead it's a, you know it's it's potential for a, a vicious cycle how do we break that cycle so i think we have to it's, it's multiple layers, right? So we have to make sure that that inclusion is not just regulatory. There needs to be the commercial case for it as well. There need to be channels that if you're saying that you are going to be able to stratify patients of sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America, so on and so forth, better than they are today to make sure that they get the right drug, 
then the drugs have to be affordable. The stratification tests have to be affordable. The routes to the market have to make sense and be clear. So all these things need to be happening at the same time. Then in the Western context, obviously the regulators have a huge part to play. And by mandating that clinical trials must include diversity, that a certain level of precision medicine and stratifying tests must accompany future um, therapeutics. But it's not just at the clinical trial stage. What's happening at the preclinical stage? Where are the samples and the models that are being used to develop these tests? Why is it that male animals are still widely used and female animals aren't included in some of the preclinical stages because they say, oh, the hormonal changes might confound their results? Well, guess what? When you get to the general population, <laughs> you know, women are over 51% of the population, so you better be accounting for uh, female, um, you know, um, differences early on. And even before that, in the cell lines that we're using for um, in vitro work, the vast majority of them, with the exception of Gila, we won't even get into Henrietta Lacks, but the vast majority of them are from European Caucasian donors, particularly the cancer cell lines. So we should be expanding our pool of biobanked material that's available from a wide range of genders and ethnicities as well at the preclinical stage, so that when you're doing those drug screenings and coming up with new hypotheses, you're already starting from a diverse set of data. Before you even get to the point where you tell people you must have X percentage of different ethnicities and genders in your clinical trial. So it's got to go all the way through roots to market, regulatory, clinical trial design, as well as preclinical and even at the academic level. But you have to have access to the tools and the resources you need to meet that demand. Like we need to be engaging with, um, you know, hospitals and, and biobanking systems and, um, genetic databases from across the globe and making that data accessible so that together we can develop solutions that are more effective for everyone. So it's all of those things mixed together. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. And and you mentioned the, uh, the Henrietta Lacks example. I, if anyone hasn't read the book, uh, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, I highly recommend it. it it's eye opening in terms, and it's, it wasn't that long ago in our history and, and I won't, I won't, um, I won't spoil the story, but it, it, it's eye opening in terms of the, the data and tissue economy that we have and and the way that the most widely used cell line in the world was um, extracted without consent and um, you know that the family hasn't shared in any of the the financial upside from an enormous industry so yeah I, I think it's an incredibly important issue so thank you for for highlighting that well you know Patrick I'll just say real quickly ironically what I've heard is that the family hasn't benefited from the upside from the book either. Oh wow! I, I, that's I'm I'm sure that's probably right. That's uh, <laughs> that's what I've that's, heard allegedly. Um, yeah, well, well if, if that's the case, if the if the author wants to uh, wants to come on the podcast and discuss that, yeah. then then she's really welcome. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's that is also an, it's an issue that's really you know the I think the financial value sharing is is an issue that's really important to me, and I'm going to have someone on the podcast coming up uh, who's part of a really exciting. Um, company called Variant Bio, which is a new um, genetic-driven drug discovery company who's committed to share revenues from their eventual products back with the, the participants that, um, whose data powers their, their, um, their research. So I'll, uh, there's a, I'll just do a quick unsolicited plug for them. They work with a number of different communities around the world to, to look at essentially groups of people that have interesting genetic variants. So um, you know, there's a, if it take a, a classic example, people who live in the Himalayas, many, many of them have evolved over time, genetic adaptations that allow them to live at higher altitude. There's something to be learned from natural genetic variation. And, and in many cases, this can be applied to, to drug discovery to help basically use the, the experiments that nature has been running on us, um, in, en masse and, and use it to design better drugs. And, and they've, uh, establish a model where they'll be sharing revenue back, and and I think it's it's important, you know, even even if it doesn't amount to be an enormous amount of money, I think it's it's important that it sets the precedent that uh, you know everyone is aligned towards the same thing, and and it's um, you know it's it's a it's a recognition as much as it is a you know a, an an actual thank you for your your time and and your data and all of that. So I think that's a, a, a something that I'm interested in continuing to follow up. And, and I think that it sounds like you have some ideas on how we can, we can make this happen too. Definitely. And I think that revenue sharing model is so key because we cannot continue to exploit these vulnerable communities again and again and again. We did it with 
um, well, the colonial days, we did it when it came to prospecting for, um, you know, novel therapies from traditional medicine practices, uh, things like statins, um, aspirin, you name it. A lot of those came from indigenous communities that already knew which uh, plant and which herbal remedy would work. And we extracted it and built a whole pharmaceutical industry off of the back of bioprospecting. Um, so those communities should be benefiting. If you find another thermoaquaticus strain that leads to a tool that's used in every uh, PCR workflow, I'd like to think that the community where you found that um, thermophile or the next CRISPR that's lurking about somewhere in, in, in the savannah or the jungle somewhere is going to go back some benefits to the community that's there as well. And I, I like that model. And it's a virtuous circle because you bring the revenue back to the community, their standard of living increases, and guess what? They're going to be the customers of the future who can finally afford the therapeutics and diagnostics that you're developing. So it is a virtuous circle. It's not an in-some um, game. Yeah, and I, and I think it builds trust as well. It, what, it, what one of the, I think there's a statistic, the UK Biobank, when they were recruiting their half a million participants, only about 5% of people contacted to join ultimately opted in so they it goes they had to contact 10 million 10 yeah 10 million people to get half a million and this is not to say you know this is a this is just that people need to be motivated to participate in research they need to trust it they need you know they need to not be afraid they need to feel like they're getting something out of it and so if if we as a as a community want to continue to do large scale research projects we have to earn that trust um, and not not take it for granted. I think things like this do if they're if they're followed through on build that trust. Hundred percent. Well, thank you, Jason. Is there is there anything else that you'd like to shout out if um, if people want to check out your your website at startcodon.co? Are you on on Twitter or any other social media? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter now. I was never on Twitter before, but I've set up an account so you can find me. I think I'm the only Jason Mellet. I think. Um, so check me out on Twitter. Please do come to startcoding.co. I say get in touch with us early and, you know, it's never too late to get started. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>